Today on The Topping Show, Matt Walsh versus The Quartering, Illinois Judge Blocks an Assault Weapon Ban, Chicago Gay Bars Boycott Bud Light, Adidas Project to Have a $771 Million Loss in 2023, Ron DeSantis Signs a Bill to Combat Disney's Deals, Christmas Tree Shops Prep for Bankruptcy, iPhone Sales Save Apple Again, and BMW Has a Late Recall. All of that and much, much more on The Topping Show. Today's episode of The Topping Show is sponsored by Topping Technologies. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see the owner at least twice a day. Have to say, gentleman's quite handsome and brilliant. The man is me. That's, that's the joke. If you're an IT leader or a business owner and need a little assistance with IT, you can reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Now, going into the business part of the podcast, you have Adidas with their ever ever painful issue of having an exuberant amount of inventory and no plan to use it still. Now, Adidas is projecting to have a $771 million loss in 2023, and they have about $1.3 billion in unsold Yeezy sneakers, which I had to triple check the pronunciation since I never actually purchased a pair. Nevertheless, that was a collaboration they had with Kanye West, infamous rapper, had his outburst and mental breakdown with anti-Semitic remarks, and the CEO of Adidas, Bijon Gulden, he noted that he took the role actually in January, ideally to try to take reins and turn the company around. And even he still doesn't have an answer. His, his quote is, quote, getting closer and closer to making a decision, unquote, in regards to what to do with such a absorbent amount of unused inventory that's just aging. And he did also note that, quote, options are narrowing, unquote. And when the... He was being interviewed, he was pressed, oh, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to destroy them, donate them, try to sell them? And the CEO noted, quote, trying to avoid that, unquote. Which, of course, it's one of those precarious things in fashion. It's a lot like fruit or vegetables. They go bad pretty quick. And the cyclical rates of how quickly they churn through inventory, they usually don't reproduce those articles for quite some time. I would give a silly amount of money if I can get an exact copy of the suit I'm wearing right now. It's a Calvin Klein Slim. I bought it five to ten years ago and I like it. I'd love to have a whole closet full, but it's one of those things where if someone has, I'll pay a finder's fee, if someone has that in the comments section, if they have a used one or if they know it's a resource in Vietnam or wherever they make them, but it's one of those things like in fashion, it's usually a very high cyclical rate. There are very few timeless things except maybe the New Balance 990 series is the main USA athletic sneaker. Not sponsored, just a fan. I think I'm on my 17th pair since I've started wearing them. Nevertheless, Adidas has this huge issue, fiscally huge. Thus far, they've lost out on about $441 million in sales due to breaking their partnership with Kanye West. Now, other interesting news, their revenue is technically increased. Now, also when asked about the performance of the company, the CEO said, quote, Despite the significant drag, footwear revenues grew by 1% during the, during the quarter, reflect, reflecting the strong momentum in the Adidas brand, is enjoying its performance categories, such as football, running, outdoors, and tennis, unquote. Yes, that is true, but that's also a whole different category. So other parts of the fashion business is helping prop up the company it's not really addressing the core issue of having these. I don't think Yeezys are used for tennis or any athletics. They're, I guess they're just for maybe wrapping or just lounging around. I, 
I don't know the actual use case for them. I know they're a cultural phenomenon. People think they're cool. But they also had a decrease of 20% in sales in North America and 9% in China. So other parts of the globe are helping prop up the business, but it's a band-aid. It's not a fix. Long-term, you're looking at a yearly loss of $771 million. It'll be interesting to see. You have so much unused inventory just sitting there. How big would the public backlash be if they were to reignite that business partnership with Kanye West? What would be the bigger backlash? The fiscal loss? Or would it be a maybe a cultural loss if they try to recoup some of that investment by reigniting that partnership they broke off? Also somewhat ironic if you look at the history of Adidas and you know who made them and what part of the century they were founded. But it's also one of the things where America, everyone likes to brag about mental health and really want to help people and care for people. And my two cents, or perhaps three cents now thanks to inflation, is Kanye West clearly had a mental breakdown. He didn't, he didn't appear to have the cognitive abilities to have an educated or a thoughtful comment at the time. It seems like he was just he was losing his wife, he's losing losing custody of his kids, and he's losing all his sponsorships. I don't know if he has any true he also professes to be very religious. And he of course had some of those crazy absurd conspiracy theories and did make anti-Semitic remarks, but many would say he was just mentally broken at the time and maybe he needed to put on some medication or get some help from a psychiatrist or a member of a church could assist. But maybe Adidas could use that shtick or that approach and say they support mental health and maybe they say Kanye was clearly going through something. But again, this is a tough situation for Adidas. I don't know if it's a, it doesn't seem to be a win or it doesn't seem to be a clear path of what to do in terms of this partnership and all that unused inventory. A lot of these businesses that just write off as a loss, but that's certainly not going to be good for the company in terms of fiscally. Now, other interesting news in terms of business, you have iPhones saving Apple yet again. So they just released their quarterly results, and this is astonishing for folks who don't realize how ginormous, how big the big Apple is. Not New York, the actual tech company, but they reported, even though they reported a decrease in sales, so it's the second quarter row, they decreased sales, they still had a Q1 revenue of $94.81 billion. First, the Wall Street expected $92.96 billion. So that's especially important if you're a publicly traded company. One of the best ways to make investors happy and as well as increase the appetite for prospective investors is you just beat expectations. Heck, this is a, not just Wall Street, it's just any life, business, work, pleasure, family. If you go above and beyond, it makes everyone happy. It makes you look good. And their earnings per share was $1.52 versus the expected $1.43 per share. And the only way they were able to do that is because of the iPhone. So the demand for the iPhone was much greater than what Wall Street expected. That revenue alone was $51.3 billion in phones, which is astonishingly impressive versus the expected Wall Street. Wall Street only thought they were going to make only going to make $48.8 billion in iPhone sales. Now, if you look at the breakdown of where the company is losing money or decreasing revenue in terms of the portfolio, they lost they lost revenue with the iMac, the iMac, they had $7.17 billion in sales versus Wall Street expected $7.8 billion. So a little, a little missing that, uh, missing the mark, so to say. And I'm not too surprised for my interview podcast, we had to build a, a PC so that we can edit those, 
those videos, it found our interviews about 756 gigabytes of data. And it was way too big to edit on a laptop. So we actually ended up, we were looking at building a computer or buying Apple. And with the same specs, and I know it's not really apples to oranges because Apple, you don't need as much RAM and stuff because of their OS and there's a lot of benefits. But when we try to do the same specs or similar specs, I think the iMac Studio, I think it, the price came out to about $9,800. And we were able to build our own PC based or Windows based for about 4,800. So there's a big delta in that price. Apple does make an amazing machine. And someday I'm sure as the podcast becomes profitable for both the daily podcast, as well as the interview podcast, and we have more resources and you're spending more time on the computer, we probably will upgrade to that eventually. But for a lot of folks, especially right now, when again, you have 40 year hyperinflation, you have the economy getting worse and worse, you have banks failing left and right. A lot of people are starting to go for, well, PCs, a little bit better ROI, a little bit lower price point for the upfront investment. So I'm not too surprised that the iMac went down. Now iPads also went down in sales. They had a Q1 revenue of $6.67 billion versus the Wall Street expected 6.69 billion. So not quite as much of a delta. And also something astonishing, Apple services. They had $20.91 billion in services versus the Wall Street expected 20.97 billion. And a lot of folks are also interested just to see how many services they do. That's an astonishing amount of revenue. Now, specifically when it comes to the iPhone really championing the revenue and the Q1 results, the new iPhone, really the Pro Max, they made up 25% of iPhone sales. And that's their newest premium phone, which is priced, shoot, probably about a couple months rent. And I can't imagine the list price right now, but that's, that's smart of them since the brand is already pretty premium. Why not make a super performance phone or phone with even greater speeds and feeds to get more of those folks who are willing to pay for a premium product. Makes sense. Now, when Tim Cook was asked about the economy and all the uncertainty and what might the company do, and he specifically said that layoffs are a last resort and they're not under consideration. Now, the company has dramatically decreased the rate of hiring and they're closing wrecks, or, or rudimentally speaking, they're closing out jobs in terms of they just have a job online, it's open, they're just taking those down. And given the astonishing profit that Apple has as a company, I don't suspect they'll have to decrease any headcount unless there's a dramatic decrease in the volume of units sold from the consumer perspective. Now, Apple, other good news for Apple, they authorized a $90 billion stock buyback and to boost the dividend by one cent per share. Now it's up to 24 cents per share which may not sound like a lot because a lot of folks think you might buy one or two shares of Apple, but a lot of folks who are really passionate about investing or they put a lot of stock in their retirement, pun someone attended, they'll be buying hundreds of thousands of shares where those cents add up in aggregate. So the current dividend is 24 cents per share. And more importantly, from a signal of a good company or a signal of stability of a company or the growth of a company, this is the 11th consecutive annual uh, increase in their annual dividend. So every year they increase it by a little bit. It's the 11th year in the row they've increased the dividends. We just spoke about, well, I believe it was last Friday, Paramount Global, they or Universal, one of the big studios, they decreased their dividend from like 24 cents to nine cents. It was a dramatic decrease, which again, scares the living bejesus out of investors, as well as prospective investors to see such a dramatic cut in all that. Now, other sad business news, you have Christmas 
Tree Shops preparing for bankruptcy. They are a national home goods retailer founded in the 1950s over in Cape Cod by a husband and wife duo, Charles Blitzkin and Doreen Blitzkayan. And the new owners expanded the company in the 1970s, so they're expanding beyond the traditional Christmas ornaments and gifts, currently having 83 brick and mortar stores across the United States. And it's a little disappointing to see such a cool, unique boutique store potentially go out of business. I haven't had any personal experience with them, but I looked online at a couple of images and the interfaces of the store. And it looked like one of those cute little shops is able to expand over time. Hopefully they do a chapter 11 bankruptcy in which they restructure the company to make it more profitable and they're able to survive long term. However, that's a little bit of the dreary business news. Now, going over to the culture part of the podcast, you have two cultural icons going head to head. You have the Matt Walsh versus the quartering. Now, Matt Walsh is a conservative commentator, been doing it for more years than I could count, starting off by doing his daily show in his car, quite literally, giving his take mostly on the religious, religious perspectives. And Matt Walsh, in terms of audience size, he has 1.8 million Twitter followers. And on YouTube, he has 2.1 million subscribers. Now, contrast that, you have the quartering. He has 273,000 followers on Twitter. And on YouTube, he has 1.53 million followers. Not to brag, but I have 231 followers on Twitter. And I think quality over quantity, we got them made. Another reminder, you can like me at Twitter or follow me on Twitter, whatever the kids say, at NIC Topping. Someone stole the, my handle that I really wanted, unfortunately. We'll get it someday, perhaps. Now, these two gentlemen are going head to head in perhaps a debate as old as time, or in a debate so old that I remember writing book reports on this in middle school, high, as well as high school, as well as writing a report, or perhaps a sales pitch, some might say it, to my parents. And it is about video games and the correlation between violent video games and humans becoming violent. And you have the quartering. He's more of a center or libertarian political commentator. And I've, in terms of my bias, I've never had the privilege of meeting any of these gentlemen. I subscribe to the Daily Wire mainly just for the articles. The articles are well written, they're well worth it. And I'll probably subscribe to the quarterings in terms of his, he owns a media company called The Publicist. And he also is a sexual, successful entrepreneur. He owns his own coffee company called Coffee Brand Coffee. So they both have some great takes on a lot of issues I agree with. And I appreciate both, both of their perspectives for listening to them for quite some time. And I do subscribe to both their YouTube channels. Now, I'm gonna play both sides of the equation and we'll do a fun little breakdown throughout. So the first video is coming from Matt Walsh. And I believe this is on the Twitter sphere. So it's about two minutes. And let's, let's dive right in. There is obviously nothing inherently wrong with video games as a medium. Okay, it's just another form of screen-based entertainment. And when it comes to our children and to ourselves too as adults, but we're just gonna focus on children for now, the two things we have to take into consideration with screen-based entertainment of all kinds are one, the messages embedded in the content, and two, the amount of time spent on the content. Now as to the first point, now I think all reasonable people understand that the screen is a very powerful messaging system. There's a reason why the corporate world spends literally billions of dollars. There's also a reason that's highly addictive. You have apps like TikTok, where it's following your eye movement. It's fascinating from a technological perspective, but he does have some great points right off the bat. They're extremely, those devices are extremely addictive by design. And again, call me an old man, but let's read a damn book. You'll learn a lot more usually, except for this channel. 
great content here. Maybe I might do a monthly book review. Let me know in the comments if you think that's something you'd be interested in. Every year, marketing through the screen. They know that it's a very effective way to influence people, especially children. There are plenty of studies that prove this point if you're into that sort of thing, but you don't need a study. You're living in the study. You are the study. We live in a culture shaped by and around the screen. Go to any school and you'll find a building full of kids whose values, beliefs, priorities, tastes have been nearly completely determined by the content they spend their days in, you know, uh, uh, ingesting through the screen. Video games are not the only example of this or even the most potent example, but they also obviously aren't an exception. They're in that category. There are all kinds of ideas and images that kids encounter in astronomically large quantities every day. Graphic violence is one category. You know, it's not good for kids to spend an exorbitant amount of time consuming graphically violent content, even if the content is fictional and virtual and imaginary. Now, thus far, it all sounds pretty, it sounds pretty like it's much like it's on point. I don't think, I think there's a lot of debate in terms of does it make you less sensitive or does it decrease your sensitivity about certain topics if you're ingesting a lot of the content. I think the main discrepancy between these two arguments for these gentlemen is, does it actually drive violence or does it drive violent action specifically? And I've yet to find a solid study that supports that since for darn near a decade as I've been looking into this issue. It doesn't mean that it has no influence just because it's fictional. Among other things, it can have the effect of desensitizing their minds and their souls to violence. And the kind of casual cruelty and violence that we so often see among kids today is a pretty good evidence of this desensitization. This also kind of proves a point or follows a trend when I also blame DAs who actually prosecute the good guys instead of the bad guys. But another phenomenon happening in America these days is when there's violence on a subway or violence in the streets and you see someone being attacked, instead of traditionally a man would jump in and do his duty to protect himself, his family and others, you have folks completely abdicating from responsibility and just recording it on their cell phone. This is especially prevalent in San Francisco where we see time and time again where you have a burglary or an assault and no one is stepping in. They're actually just taking a video of it because they've seen it so often before. And also for those who do interfere, those are the ones who actually get prosecuted by the DAs perversely enough. So this does seem to, again, it all sounds sound, so to say. Like it, it kind of boggles my mind that anyone could, could hear an argument like this. You know, kids are being desensitized to violence. Then you hear people say, well, what, what do you mean? Where's your evidence of that? Where's my evidence of it? Look around you. What are you talking about? You're living in the evidence. Now, this doesn't mean that kids should never be exposed to any form of violence at all. Violence is part of the world. It's not always bad either. There's heroic violence. There's violence in defense of the innocent and so on. It's good for kids to be given examples of that kind of violence, even if the examples are sometimes fictional, even if they're cartoonish. You know, superheroes, for example, are, uh, you know, uh, an example of... So that wasn't the whole video of Matt's take on this particular issue. He's written articles before, which the Daily Wire did seem to omit lately, in which Matt more focuses on the hypothetical correlation between violent video games and violent actions. Again, I don't personally see enough studies to actually support that theory. Although, even with my argument when I put a slide to show together campaigning for my parents to allow me to play Grand Theft Auto, I think Vice, Vice City, my sales skills were not on par. And even though I presented all the data, they still shot me down. Though, now that I'm a little bit older, a little bit wiser, I completely agree with their decision since there's no, 
I don't see an added benefit for a child to play that type of video game when it has an M rating. It doesn't make you certainly does not make you smarter. I don't think it makes you violent, but where's the value add of that particular subject being inserted into their lives? Now we go over to the quartering, who's pushing back against this, and he brings some good points as well in terms of the people on the right traditionally completely, kind of like some elections, they just fail completely at marketing and they traditionally seem to be ignoring the culture war by not even putting an offering from a video game perspective and media perspective though you're having some alternatives creep up thankfully giving more options to consumers so it's not such a one-sided palette so to say so there are more options but this is where it starts to get a little bit interesting so to say and we'll play some news directly from jeremy who's known as the quartering in a couple minutes as well the right's weird obsession with this so this is matt reading a quote or rather a tweet from the quartering Vowing video games anime and social media is why they will never appeal to most of gen z the base is literally dying off and most of the voices in the community are actively refusing recruits well with all due it's hard to well, matt will argue with it but just anecdotal anecdotally from my life that sounds like a pretty fair statement to make you don't really see a lot of conservatives going after that younger audience and marketing their values and their ideals to them and promulgating those ideals and those ideas. It's something they need to work on much, much better. And that's something the Daily Wire seems to be doing as they're going to create their own kids animated TV shows. So there's an alternative from the traditional left-leaning, now almost indoctrination of ideologies for those TV shows. Again, great for the consumer since more options, the better. Due respect to uh, Jeremy from the quartering, I think it's safe to say that I have recruited more people into conservative conservatism than he ever has or ever will. Um, now, this is an interesting perspective that Jeremy will talk about as well. I tend to agree with that statement, partially because if you look at Matt and his life's work and how he's promulgating his ideals, I think the audience he's going after are people more on the right who have been disenfranchised or they haven't really gotten involved before. So, very similar to religion in terms of, on average, there's a lot of folks who are raised Catholic, raised Christian, and their parents give them a great template to live in terms of those ideals, those philosophies. And they go to church with their parents every Sunday until maybe high school or college. But then there's that big disconnect and they lose that connection with their faith. And how do you reconnect with them? I think Matt's really good at reaching that audience as well as some folks in the middle. I think Jeremy, also known as a quartering, his audience is much more in the middle and more libertarian minded. So I think it, there is some overlap, but I think they're going after different audiences. And Matt, I think Matt truly believes that his duty is to let people know about his faith, let those ideals out there, stand up for what he believes in, stand up for the justice of women's rights, stand up for many of the things he professes and his ideologies. And part of that is to get them on his political side so that they can vote for policies he agrees on, such as preserving the right, um, the right to live or right to life, as he's a very pro, big pro-life advocate. He's gone to several rallies. Those are things very dear to his heart. And for that, that's a mainly, it's a very political issue in terms of who controls the laws. So it makes sense for him to want to have more people who vote for that initiative. So I tend to agree with this right now. I do sometimes, you know, I have to admit, get a little bit tired of hearing lectures on effectiveness from people who are far less effective. Now, he says far less effective, but 
it's a a different audience. I think Matt's effective at going at that particular middle to right audience as well as the folks who have been disenfranchised by the right historically. Jeremy is very proficient, I believe, at getting the middle libertarian audience and bringing them together. And of course, you do have some overlap. Now, we're going to go over to Jeremy's message in a second or two. So we'll go ahead and play this out. So this is Jeremy, who is also known as the quartering. Well, with all due so this, he's going to play some clips of Matt and react to it. And I'll react to him direct, reacting, to Matt reacting, to someone else reacting. And some of the comments can react as well. If it really does help if you like, subscribe, and comment. Respect to uh, Jeremy from the quartering. I think it's safe to say that I have recruited more people into conservative conservatism than he ever has or ever will. <laughs> I, I had to pause. I don't think it's hard to find a laugh that's really attractive in terms of Every time I hear someone, maybe it's just me, but every time I hear someone laugh on the internet, it just sounds weird. Is this guy a cult leader? False. He is the founder of the Sweet Baby Gang. I cannot say anymore, but it's not a cult. It is a gang. Just to clarify. I've never called myself a conservative. I've never asked for people to be recruited into conservatism. Okay? And, and, and... True. That's where I think the big disconnect is between these two guys. And I think they actually do have more in common than not. I wonder how popular Matt Walsh would be if the Daily Wire wasn't spending hundreds of thousands of dollars promoting his content. Honestly, probably about the same or a little bit less. If you look at how Matt's built up his brand, he he had a fairly large audience before the Daily Wire. He had his daily podcast, or I think back then as a vlog, as the youngsters might say. But he was doing a daily video in his car, just talking about his philosophies, his thoughts about current ideals, talking a lot about religious philosophies as well, in particular. So I still think he'd be fairly popular, but Daily Wire did bring him to the next level. And I think it's also a very symbiotic relationship. Matt Walsh nearly doubled the size of the Daily Wire subscriber base thanks to his documentary. Which they do, by the way. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars promoting Ben Shapiro. I see Matt Walsh's ads everywhere. So I just wonder exactly how big Matt Walsh would be if he weren't owned by a super huge mega corporation. I'm in my... I wouldn't call him a mega corporation. They're probably... No, they are the most successful right-leaning media company that isn't Fox News. I believe the Daily Wire has about 240, 250 employees. And they have a little over 1 million paid subscribers, which is a huge business achievement in and of itself, especially in a day where you have such tight, such dramatic competition between all these streaming platforms, all these subscription platforms. So they are large, but in the, if you look at the traditional media, they still have the billions of revenue and the billions of resources. So I don't know if I would call them, I wouldn't give it such a dramatic title. Office with an $80 webcam and a microphone. I don't know what webcam Jeremy uses that's only $80, but that's a good camera. He should be advertising that. Um, I do sometimes, you know, I have to admit, get a little bit tired of hearing lectures on effectiveness from people who are far less effective. Could you be more sensitive? How about, how about hearing about how sensitive and how much of a floppy puss bag you sound like? I don't own a, uh, I do it on a dictionary. I don't know what, a, I don't know what that term is. I'll have to try Urban Dictionary later. Doesn't sound good though. Okay, Matt, like I'm sick of this. Mm, I just fart in a jar and sniff it and talk about how effective. Not a doctor, but do not recommend. If you are. 
You know who Matt Walsh has recruited? Christian conservatives and kids that that carry a briefcase in school and already agree. Ridiculous. Briefcases? School? Who would ever carry a briefcase? Nevertheless, real men carry leather briefcases. I highly recommend it. Agree with them. I would argue that I probably meet, meet, uh, reach a lot more people who are politically undecided than Matt Walsh does. But that's not my job. He must think his job is to recruit conservatives, which, okay. I agree. My job is to entertain and, inter and, and inform. Uh, but this They're both entertainers as well. Their daily livelihood is entertainment. Given mass spiritual and political ideologies, I think he wholeheartedly believes that part of his job is to recruit people. This is weird. Like he always tries to fall back on his numbers. Like, like the Daily Wire didn't literally beg me to bring him on my channel to promote his book, which they did do. Okay, this guy knows who I am. He ignores my DMs. People say, "Oh, well, here's another interesting issue where Jeremy seems to be very offended that he didn't get back to him via DM. DM being a direct message, as the kids would say on the Twitter. I tend to believe that Matt honestly did not get his particular message. I say this because if you go to Matt Walsh's Twitter page, anyone can send him a message. I attempted to myself. I just clicked on his profile. There's a little message button. I did a draft and I said, okay, I can send a message. And again, going back to Matt's Twitter subscribers, he has literally 1.8 million followers. And there's also an even larger audience on Twitter. I I'm not sure if you, have to, if you have to be a subscriber in order to send them a direct message, but given his vast popularity, it's not unfounded or too crazy to think he may have honestly not seen Jeremy's message. Given the volume of in-mail he's getting, he, realistically, he would have to search for the quartering. And the quartering is a very large public figure on the platform. So maybe he was at the top. I don't know. I, get, I only get one or two messages. I, I don't know what it's like to have it subject volume of messages or if it sorts it based on how many followers you have or something like that but i tend to give matt the benefit of the doubt in this particular case which is jeremy why are you bringing up uh why are you bringing up drama why don't you just dm him personally i did and i think recording i the quartering i think you have to be he has to follow you in order to message him because i did do the just to look at both sides of the equation, I did look at Jeremy's profile, which I also do follow, and there was not that button for me to message him, maybe because I'm not verified or I don't have the blue check mark, but I thought that was interesting. Multiple times over two months ago, and he never replied to them. Never once, okay? So people that are all butthurt about Matt Walsh. And Matt is saying he's getting hundreds of DMs, thousands of messages. Again, he's a very political figure. People love and hate him, and there's some folks in the middle as well. But because of his ideologies and his philosophies and the way he goes about his business in terms of he doesn't back down from a fight, as a wise man might say, or a wise man once said, it's not inconceivable for him to authentically have that high volume of data or messaging coming to him. You know, they want to stand him and say, well, Jeremy, why are you making this public? Bro, I tried two months ago to contact him, to which he... And Jeremy did message him. He's showing a little screenshot where he did send him a message. And I believe Matt Walsh did call him out or critique him first. 
publicly on the platform. So I don't think it's inappropriate for them to both have public commentation on the subject. Ignored. And you know what he said about that? I get hundreds of DMs and emails and interview requests. I'm just so popular. How could I have possibly seen a DM from somebody whose show I've been on and whose, whose agency begged for me to go on his show to sell his book? I mean, are you joking, Matt? I, I just think that, like, the entire thing, like, I don't care if you like Matt Walsh, but he's just simply wrong. Uh, on cultural issues, he's right on a lot, a lot of other ones, but his opinions around culture are exactly why the right keeps losing. Daily Wire is all interested in creating culture, but they want to put it behind a, they want to put it all behind a paywall. I understand you have to pay for stuff. Now that is true, but it's also a double-ended sword because one of the most difficult things, especially in media, is monetization as well as making a profit, especially the more you grow as a company. Uh, I'm very excited to say thanks to everyone who watches the show. We're, I think, about one-third of the way towards monetization in terms of the number of view hours. Thank you again for everyone subscribing. We did hit the requirement for the subscribers, so for the subscriber count. But once you have folks that are editing your videos, you have folks that are inserting cool graphics and doing these all types, neat types of things, your overhead dramatically increases. And it's not just only a tech company I could speak. Uh, particularly for this when you're growing the company, it's not just the base salaries. You have to worry about healthcare benefits. You have to worry about insurance. You have all these different coverages, insurance for the company, overhead in terms of actual materials. There's a lot of overhead once you start growing the company. And the two, again, the Daily Wire has about 240, 250 full-time employees, as well as, I believe, contractors as well. So there's a big overhead for the company. So that's why they have their subscription where you pay I think it's like 80 to 100 bucks a year and you get access to the full amount of data and all the content but they do have a fair amount of public content partly to entice you or get you interested enough to the point where you are willing to up the ante and pay for the extra features they have a really great program called behind the scenes or there's some type of i forget the actual vernacular but it allows you to see back, backstage pass that's actually a term where it's a laid-back environment where you have many of the Daily Wire hosts all having a scotch or a, a cigar and hanging out backstage. It's very more of a laid-back environment, shooting the shit, so to say. And it's very entertaining, and it gives you more of an insight to how their thoughts, ideals. And it's, it seems to be unscripted, so it's more off the cuff. It's a little more entertaining in that regard. And they do have that. I'm not sure about their cartoons. That might be what that might be what he's talking about. And in terms of culture, I think the Daily Wire, I don't know how much it would cost for this, but they should start a video game division. As they grow as a company, I think they'll have those resources at hand so you could have more competition in the marketplace and more of an alternative to help build the culture. They're building the culture, but I think it could certainly be a faster acceleration or adoption rate if they were to have more free content. But at the same time, then you have less resources to make documentaries, make movies, pay your employees, build out these new headquarters. They have offices as well as the global headquarters in Tennessee, but they also have one over in Florida. So they have a lot of infrastructure fiscally, but they also have a lot of the things on the back end logistics. So let's see what else Jeremy says as well. Okay, I'm not saying that they can't make money, but the culture the Daily Wire is creating is behind a paywall of, will of people who are already willing to consume it. That is a good point. The people who are actually paying the Daily Wire already have a 
a propensity to already be more right-leaning or maybe in the middle they appreciate the right perspective but that's a one of the most difficult issues is how do you expand the audience to the middle of the left that's really as a business what you want to do is you want to have you have your core customers but you also want to keep expanding so that you can make greater and greater have a greater and greater positive impact so it'll be interesting to see how do they get more people in the middle and they do have some of that free content even matt walsh who he is leaving the youtube channel or the youtube platform for his long format daily show partially because of the censorship behind youtube but he still has clips very similar to joe rogan joe rogan has an exclusivity contract with the spotify company and I believe it was a 200 million dollar contract where that's the only platform he could put his full length interviews. But he still has, I think it's Jerry Clips or Joe Rogan Experience Clips on YouTube where it's, you know, five to 10 minute clips. And those are free and those entice you to go to the main platform if you find that particular interview clip attractive or interesting. And you get to go on the main platform. And in this case, Spotify is actually perhaps not the apples to apples comparison since Spotify is free for most people. You can pay to have, I think, their ads removed or something. but you still have that funnel in terms of people seeing that for free and then they go over there. So we'll see. What else does he have to say? It isn't creating culture. It's entertaining an existing group of people that want more of the same. Yes and no. I think they gained, a, I think they doubled in size thanks to Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? In terms of who joined that big rush of new subscribers, a lot of them probably were more on the right but I've talked to some of my friends who are on the left in the middle and they were very interested in that documentary and they paid to become a subscriber because of that particular content that the Daily Wire created with Matt Walsh. So I think they are adopting pers uh, consumers on the left in the middle, but it is perhaps slower than what it could be if they expanded their content. All right. So yes, the Daily Wire has done a lot of good, but this whole right wing and by the way it's not just matt walsh remember jack thompson disbarred video game attorney he wants to go and save the, the these people and say that it was he he said the idiot at parkland was playing halo that's why he did it i mean th do you not remember jack thompson's crusade against grand theft auto yeah i tend to agree with this again it this content isn't making kids smarter and it certainly isn't appropriate for kids but i also don't think it's making them violent i have one of my very um, liberal friends perhaps the biggest beta i know very nice guy but he played the most disgusting hardcore m-rated video games where you could do things more graphic than i could possibly say on this youtube channel but his whole life he's been very calm maybe some maybe passive aggressive but he's never shown any violence and he played the most violent video games that were published at the time Granted, this is anecdotal evidence from from my experiences, but I maybe Kurt maybe it made him more depressed or had a negative outlook in life. Again, I don't think it's perhaps positive for your mental health, but I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that it makes people violent, and I think that's the big disconnect here. I mean, this is who even Rush Limbaugh. You see this, of all the people Rush Limbaugh just defended video games saying, I don't know how much about video games, but I guarantee they weren't a large influence on the person that did these terrible things. I mean, you, I have bad takes and people still follow me. He has bad takes, people still follow him. That's fine. This isn't any kind of cringe Matt Walsh's canceled thing. 
but what it is is to point out that like bro this is why the right keeps losing is because the people that are super popular have no idea about culture and they think it's all kid stuff i mean keep saying that and you'll just keep disaffecting more it should be more about converting people interest getting people interested in voting republican and and uh, rather than pandering nonstop to your base, you got to be willing to take some dislikes and unfollows and unsubscribes to do that. Matt isn't, but he's super rich and he has a lot of followers. So, good job, Matt. You must always be right because of that. And on the screen, he actually has another tweet from Matt Walsh, where I think Matt Walsh said, in particular, stop pretending violent video games are harmless just because you liked playing them. And again, I think. If they were to have a debate one-on-one -on -one or a chat one-on-one, -on -one, these gentlemen have a lot more in common than not, I think. And I don't think anyone's... I think there's a big disconnect between harmless and viol physical violence. I don't think... Video games certainly aren't harmless for children. But again, I don't know if there's a violent thing. And again, these gentlemen are forgetting. They're both men of beard. Both have pretty good beards. Both have many good opinions. Perhaps they just need to get a drink and chat about it a little bit and put it all behind them. But Jeremy does have some good points. Republicans, people on the right, they need to keep building out those cultural initiatives. And again, Marketing 101, reach that new audience. Now, other interesting cultural news, which I don't want to say I called it, but yeah, I, I called it. Many other people did. Chicago gay bars are now boycotting Bud Light. Now, this is in the light of Bud Light now distancing itself from trans activist Dylan Mulvaney. And it's this it, again from Bud Light. It was the most apathetic political statement where they said they had the comically bland America commercial where they had the little Clydesdales and American flag. They even referenced 9/11, and the CEO didn't technically completely push away their perspective supporting Dylan. The CEO, in an earnings call, he said they need to get back to making beer and providing a beverage that people just have a good time. They'll make statements perhaps the biggest duh of all time, but they also stressed that it was a one, they made one commemorative can or aluminum bottle celebrating Dylan's 365 days of being a woman where Dylan famously prances through the forest while wearing high heels, which anecdotally speaking, I asked my, my sister, my mom, and that's not what females do, but nevertheless, they gave Dylan a can commemorating that 365 days and the CEO was stressing that it was only one can. It, it wasn't a whole marketing initiative. And by the way, it was, it was another marketing company. We just fired them. It wasn't us, which is the most pathetic thing to do. And the exact opposite, opposite of what any real leader does. You take responsibility for your team and your company's actions. You don't acquiesce and just say, oh, no, that wasn't me. No, if someone makes a mistake, you own it. You're the leader of the company. You can't say, oh, yeah, it was that marketing company. Who chose that marketing company? You did. Are you, do people really believe this marketing company didn't roll out a huge controversial campaign without checking with you first? No one believes that. And Alyssa Heinerscheid van Hooven, the, um, on LinkedIn, she bragged about being the first female um, executive marketing executive for brewing industry, which ironic since she is now on paid leave still. And she is the one who apparently spearheaded this initiative. But as soon as Bud Light and the CEO, Anheuser Bush, said, oh yeah, we just want to get back to brewing beer. We're not political statements. We just made one can. They shot themselves in the foot because one, it was not authentic, so you didn't make people on the right happy. But 
now you're making people on the, on the left, they're pissed off too. So you have successfully now pissed off both of your audience. The only people left are in the middle and they're just confused as all hell as why is a bottle of piss water, I mean, high quality hops and not at all disgusting toxic liquids they put in your body. People in the middle are just confused as all hell as why is there a political statement on a can? Why is Why are you preaching to me when I just want to drink and forget about as I kill my brain cells with this product? Now, specifically, it is a holding company. So a, a, again, this is a holding company for Giga Bars called, I'm not joking, Two Bears Tavern Group. Now, they own four gay bars in Uptown and Rogers Park over in Chicago, and they particularly posted on their Instagram. They noted that in regards to Thursdays of Bud Light distancing themselves, they say, this, quote, shows how little Anheuser-Busch cares about the L... G B T Q I A plus learning new things every day. That's long, but um, nevertheless, I'll restart the quote. Quote: This shows how little Anheuser Busch cares about the L G B T Q I A plus community, and in particular transgender people, who have been under relentless attack in this country. Unquote. So they've pissed off everyone now, and this bar is saying they will no longer sell their product. Granted, I don't know the sales volume of that particular market for that particular drink, but now everyone is boycotting Bud Light. Will the brand survive? Debatable. The portfolio of Anheuser-Busch InBev, the Belgian-based holding company, they, over, they have over 50 beers in their portfolio. So the company as a whole, I don't think it's possible for them to go out of business. Time shall tell, but that one particular brand of Bud Light particularly may be. Time shall tell. There's a lot more folks waking up to the fact that they own Corona, Michelob Ultra, of course Budweiser, Shock Top, and more brands than I could think of. But more and more people are starting to realize, oh wait, they own that, they own that, they own that. Well, why not Miller Light, or Coors Light, or Yaling? I think that's how you pronounce it. But there are a lot of alternatives, especially in that category. Now, time shall tell to see how this progresses. Now, going on to the political part of the podcast, you have some good news. You have a Illinois federal judge blocking the Illinois assault weapon ban. This comes after an appeals court rejected a separate separate request for the injunction. Now, U.S. District Ju- Judge Stephen M. McClain granted the injunction prohibiting Illinois from enforcing the ban. And there are a lot of quotes, so I apologize. I have to break a little more eye contact than usual. And Particularly, particularly, they granted an injunction prohibiting Illinois from enforcing this ban statewide, as well as he is weighing, this judge is weighing the lawsuits coming from gun owners as well as gun dealers who are having their rights as well as their actual income affected by this and their livelihood, which I used to think the United States was free for, you know, the freedom to pursuit. You're supposed to be able to pursue your happiness, pursue your American dream, at least it used to be. Now, when asked about the situation, he noted that, quote, plaintiffs have satisfied their burden for a preliminary injunction. They showed irreparable harm and no adequate remedy at law. A reasonable likelihood of success on these merits that the public interest is in favor of the relief and the balance of harm weighs in their favor, unquote. Now, this is coming in light of Illinois banning the sale of 
assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines. I use the biggest air quotes I could possibly could if you're just listening because, again, it's a standard-capacity magazine. The rifle was designed with a 20- and 30-round magazine. Technically, it's designed with a 20-round, but Eugene Stoner, the engineer behind the development of the AR-15, the Armor Light Rifle, ironically invented in California by aerospace company Armalite, hence AR-15. It basically has had a 30-round mag for most um, overwhelming majority of the history of the product has been mass-produced, and it's actually an antique when you consider it was developed over 50 years ago, I believe now. But nevertheless, it's a standard capacity magazine. It's what comes with the rifle in all freedom-loving states. And it's also they're requiring existing owners to register them with Illinois State Police, a state not at all corrupt over the past years upon years upon years. And if you look at, I know people don't really read books these days or study history in public schools, unfortunately, but every instance in history, from Germany to China to Russia, every time they require people to register rifles, as in give the police a database of the serial numbers and what you have, it's never ended with you having more rights or, frankly, being alive. Since there's only two reasons, I think Ted Cruz perfectly and accurately did say, there's only two reasons they want that list, is to tax them or to take them. I tend to agree with that sentiment since there's no other legitimate reason. So that's why federally, for the longest time, it used to be it's illegal to have that done because politicians used to be not smart, but moderately more intelligent than they used to be now. That's not saying much, but they look at history books and realize Terrible, terrible things. The worst things in humanity ever happen when governments take guns. And by the way, if you look at overall, most worst actors in history, they're governments. Now, his decision comes after the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals on April 18th denied the injunction by the Naperville gun dealer to block the ban, which, while cases challenging it wind up in the courts, the gun dealer has since asked the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh up on the case. Now, thankfully, for, this time, for the first time in decades, there's actually some balance and there's actually more people who believe in the Constitution on the Supreme Court. And they've said you cannot ban guns in common pre- in common use. Over 50%, over again, over 50% of every rifle sold in the United States is an AR-15. It is the most common um, main firearm for rifles, partially because the patents for the original design are long expired. So any manufacturer can make it without having to ba- pay royalties to the original designer, Eugene Stoner and Armor Light, who subsequently sold it to Colt, who, thanks to them, they made it a commercial viable success. Interesting story in and of itself. So, a little bit interesting positive news. And again, when it comes, perhaps one of the best use cases for very strict, rough, unconstitutional gun laws, look at Chicago. Every law that people, usually on the left, some on the right, Every gun law they want is already on the books. It's in Chicago. They've had it for decades. They still have the highest crime rates, and as well as being one of the most morally vacuous areas in the U.S., but the laws are already there. They don't work. They don't stop crime. They disarm good guys, which is why many gun owners are such so involved in politics because with a switch, unfortunately, with a quick you know, strike of a pen, they could be made felons overnight if they don't stay on top of those laws. That's why you find a lot of owners are very politically active because they have to be on top of those laws because they change so frequently. 
Now, time shall tell how this progresses, but thankfully those gun manufacturers who are foolish enough to still be in the state, such as Rock River Arms, it seems like maybe they won't go out of business yet since, again, I think 90% of their portfolio are AR-15 pattern style rifles. So time shall tell what happens in the state of Illinois. Now, other interesting political news, you have Ron DeSantis, who is the governor of Florida. He signed a bill that allows the Florida board to cancel Disney's deals, which further goes between the great fight of Ron DeSantis versus Disney, where Disney brilliantly decided as a media company to get inserted more into politics, where Ron DeSantis proposed a bill which was cliche and unethically called the don't say, don't say gay bill, which didn't say the word gay in the actual bill. It said you're not allowed to discuss or more accurately indoctrinate children into sexual philosophies or ideas. I think it's between zero, kindergarten and third grade which there's no legitimate reason at all to talk about kids of any sexual orientation when they're that young except to indoctrinate them into a political or sexual ideology. Straight, I don't care if you want to talk about straight sex, gay sex, whatever kind, there used to be such thing as a child's innocence. There's no legitimate reason for them to know those things. Let them have their innocence. You, I don't know how perverted these people are. We have teachers prolifically on TikTok. There's a whole genre of teachers pushing kids for different sexual ideas. Your job is to teach them zeros and ones. Teach them how to add, subtract. Maybe, again, I know they won't do this, but history books, dust them off. But there's a lot of concern of why are teachers pushing ideas that are sexual on children? Which I thought people on the left and the right would come together and think, yeah, that makes sense. Why do they have books that have graphic sexual descriptions in elementary school libraries? Any of those images, I don't think they're appropriate at all at that age. However, it's become a politically divisive issue. Disney decided to comment on that, saying that they don't support the bill. This caused the state of Florida to wonder, why are we giving you billions and trillions of dollars over the lifetime of the company in tax subsidies? And we're also giving you carp launcher, unprecedented freedom to basically govern yourself in these specially carved out districts. If you're going to push against the state and you're going to work against us, why are we going to keep treating you like royalty or maybe I'm sure there's a good cliche or pun in there to refer back to the Disney kingdom. Well, yeah, that kind of works, but why are we going to give you all these benefits if you're pushing against us and you're attacking us politically? It seems to stay, say, it seems sound to ask that question and, and Ron DeSantis has stepped up. Now this specific bill that Ron DeSantis signed, will specifically allow the board to cancel development deals with Disney. Now, under the bill, which passed Republican-controlled legislation, that the Central Tourism Oversight District Board, all these great long titles, whose members were appointed by DeSantis, can cancel any deals signed up to three months before the board's creation. Now, this is another quote specifically from DeSantis. He says, make no mistake about it. The reason why the legislation had to act and not because of anything we did, it was basically born out of Disney's arrogance and that they would be able to subcontract around the duly enacted laws of the state of Florida. That's wrong, unquote. Now, the legislation formed the board in February to replace the Disney-controlled Reedy Creek Improvement District to oversee the development of 25,000 acres wow, that's a lot of land, surrounding Disney World, effectively wrestling control from the company and handing it to DeSantis. Which is astonishing to think how much land they own 
and how much of a symbiotic relationship they used to have with the state. Now, a lot of people are saying they're the number one employer in the state of Florida. I haven't found anything to support that is specifically in Orlando, which makes sense. That's where the Disneyland or Disney World is. I forget which one. I'm not a child. But in Orlando, they do seem to be the number one employer, which again, if you have so much business in there, why do you, why would you get involved in politics is beyond me. But I don't think they're number one in the state. They're, they do have a very significant impact on the tourism and all that industry in and of itself, which is a huge part of the Florida economy, which again, why would you put your foot in your mouth and get involved beyond me? But Disney also has a lot of activists who work there. Some would say mainly activists as they themselves insert more and more political ideologies and philosophies into content for children, which thanks to the free market, you have a lot of competitors such as the Daily Wire. They're going to invest, I believe Jeremy Boring, the CEO, so they're going to invest about $100 million into creating childhood content and like cartoons. So Disney, like many businesses, are creating their own competition. And again, they are biting the hands that hand that feeds, so say, continuing to battle against DeSantis. This is even more bizarre and ridiculous. If I was a shareholder, I'd be pissed. When Bob Iger, when he was brought back as CEO recently, he said they wanted to get out of politics. If I owned stock in that company or if I had an if I had a fiscal actual benefit or if I was actually fiscally invested, I would say yes, shut up and make content. Just make content, increase your streaming platform, make it profitable. Don't get involved in politics. If you're not a politically based organization where like your CNN or Fox News and your job is to create politically specific content for that for that audience, which there is one, but freaking kids cartoons, one would say you could have the whole audience if you were to not push ideologies. Nevertheless, this is the decision they're going with, and I guess he's ignoring his own advice, where Bob Iger said, oh yeah, we're gonna get out of politics. Clearly not so much as, I believe last week, they, they're starting to sue the state of Florida. Time shall tell if this is perhaps a long-term business blunder. Now, getting on to the business blunder of the day, unfortunately, is a little, it's not deadly, thankfully, I not reported deaths, but the business blunder of the day is BMW recalling 90,000 vehicles. Now, this is, one of the issues when you construct a vehicle and you have hundreds, thousands of suppliers, since it is one of the most complex pieces of machinery most Americans and people will buy in their lifetime, there's a lot of components that go into it. And unfortunately, due to incumbent and more legacy automotive makers, they are very reliant on the supply chain and many manufacturers. That's what made Tesla so unique is they did an overwhelming amount of engineering and manufacturing in-house when it comes to the components of the vehicles. BMW being a legacy automotive company, they use a lot of suppliers like Bosch, which is a brilliant engineering company, but they also use, unfortunately, they use Takata. And Takata had a big issue a couple years ago where their airbags are basically frag grenades, which is somewhat ironic when you think of an airbag, but also scary deadly since people potentially could die from that as they have shrapnel shot into them if the airbags were to deploy. And in some cases, they were actually deploying regardless of impact of the vehicle, even more concerning because it's not a, you're not expecting that. Now, this is effective. This is not only BMW, but BMW's in the news and they seem to have high volume. Now, this recall affected 19 other automotive manufacturers as well, which shows you how many manufacturers use the same suppliers. And if it will affect BMW vehicles manufactured between 2000 and 2015, so that's quite a wide array of vehicles, about 90,000 vehicles in total, again. And the National Highway Traffic Safety Association, 
That's a mouthful. So, of course, we have a fun acronym to learn again, or perhaps learn for the millionth time. NHTSA. They noted that, quote, if the inflators rupture, the metal fragments ejecting toward the driver's face could kill or leave them with devastating, life-altering injuries, unquote. So, yeah, not a great thing. Certainly a business blunder. They need to find a different supplier because this is affecting everyone. And Takata, their brand is really, perhaps they should get the business blunder of the day. But it's one of those things where everyone was using them and they had a, they used the wrong chemical. Or they used, it was a more volatile chemical, which is the origin of this situation. And thankfully, it doesn't sound like anyone's died specifically from this initial, from this particular recall. But for you to have a brand that is the ultimate driving machine, and I do give BMW credit, they're one of the few companies in the world who still have are brave enough, still authentic enough to make a stick shift. In a world of computer whiz bangs and automotive technology and autonomous driving doing it all for you, they realize there are still those passionate enough about the driving experience to demand that third pedal and use that clutch and use that stick as the way they were intended as a pure enthusiast appreciates. So they are one of the few companies that listen to the consumers and create an exceptionally engineered product for the stick shift, thankfully. But unfortunately, due to the airbags and this issue in the recall, they are the business blunder of the day. Thank you everyone for tuning in today. Cannot thank you enough for liking, subscribing, and content or commenting and sharing it with your friends. All that helps the channels get more attention. And again, the more resources we have, the more we'll be able to improve the content. Also appreciate the feedback you leave in the comments as well. Also, don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, heck, tell your enemies, tell anyone and everyone to stay safe and fight the good fight.